Question. Who, other than Jesus, is the most famous, most important person who ever lived? Think about it. I know this is church, so it's going to be a guy in the Bible. Uh, It's not Charlton Heston. Uh, Moses. Think about it. Moses, throughout redemptive history, is not even arguably, aside from Jesus, he is the dude. He's the one. And and in Judaism especially, I mean, in, in all three of the monotheistic world religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, uh, Moses plays a prominent role. Uh, and we look at Moses as being sort of the father of Israel in that sense. He's He's the one that God raised up. He casts a shadow over all of God's word. Uh, and until Moses' time, no one even did miracles. He was the first. Uh, think of it. Who, who could forget the challenges he had in Egypt? Uh, there with the Hebrew taskmaster when he took the guy's life and then the people sort of, he got found out and had to run off to the backside of Sinai, tended sheep for 40 years until this bush was on fire and not being consumed and started talking to him. Tell me that wouldn't flip your noggin. I mean, he, and, and when the, the bush talks, just take off your sandals, Moses. This is holy ground. He's having an, account, an encounter with God himself. And so all the way through and, and then he goes through and, I mean, he has a speech impediment. He says, God, I, I'm, I, you got the wrong guy. Uh, there's no way I can do this deliver your people thing. Because God says, I've heard the cries of the people in Egypt uh, that were in, in cruel bondage. Not just bondage, but Pharaoh had gotten cruel. He was really tormenting these guys. And he says, I'm not the one. And he says, I don't talk well. And and God says, well, that's fine, but that's not going to stop me from accomplishing my purposes in you. So we'll get your brother to do your talking, and you're still going. And so here's Moses. He he goes through this whole deal, and they go through the ten plagues, and then they go through the Red Sea, and, you know, Moses holds up his staff, and the the whole deal. And and then they get out into this wilderness. They go to the people are out of water, and they... Uh, God says, look, go to this rock at Horeb, and I, and I want you to strike the rock, and water will come out. We know, and the, the New Testament tells us that that rock is Christ. And, and then the second time around, when uh, the people need water, and he says, I want you to go to the rock at Horeb, but I want you to speak to it. And Moses is just ticked off at the people. He doesn't like what's going on. The people had murmured and griped and complained for 40 years. They did that. And, and and, and so he strikes the rock, and, and as a result, he's not able to go into the promised land. But still, God had accomplished so much through this man. And, and, and he goes up onto Mount Nebo, and he looks out over the land of Canaan, over the promised land. The, the land that it was 11 days' journey from Egypt to where they got to the edge of the land at Kadesh Barnea. You remember the story there in Leviticus where uh, they send the spies into the land. They're gone 40 days, and, and, and they come back, and, and 10 of them say, oh, the giants, we were like grasshoppers. And, you know, no, 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 there's no way we can do this. And, and Joshua and Caleb, faithful, trusting God, said, oh, yes, we can. 
Why? Because God said we can. And the people rebelled then. We'll look at that next week. We're going to look at the rebellion because that's here in Hebrews as well. But talking about Moses, and and God's going to destroy the nation of Israel there on the spot, and Moses hits the ground. He falls on his face, pleads with God, don't, don't kill these people. Spare them. And he does. And so we see then that they're sentenced to wander in this desert, instead of it being 11 days, it's 40 years, to wander one year for every day that the spies had been in the land. And and during that time, anyone over the age of 20 years old was going to die. They would not go in. And God says, you know, in a sense, what he's saying through that is, is if you don't want what I want to provide, if you don't want my blessing, you don't get my blessing. And, And so Moses, again, through this whole time, is just playing a, a prominent role. More famous than any person prior and up until Jesus, uh, the most famous, the most noteworthy, the most looked-upon guy that there was. He's the first person that would know and say and use God's name. Remember there in Exodus chapter 3, he says, Who should I tell Pharaoh is sending me? And God says, You tell him that I am is sending you, implying fill in the blank, Moses. I am that I am. His writing, Moses' writing, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are attributed to his writing. And his writings became God's written speech to man. And he was responsible for putting God's word into writing. He, He was the one. Uh, When he came down from the mountain, he had God's very word in his hands, inscribed by the finger of God himself. The messages of both the writing and the non-writing prophets throughout the Old Testament exhort, listen to Moses. So is this guy important in God's economy? Absolutely. Uh, and, And without argument, the most important guy in all of God's word, other than the Lord Jesus himself. And the the writer here in Hebrews is is going to get into and talk about Moses. Uh, As we look at him and what the Bible says about Moses himself, that we see that he was the first mediator. And what's a mediator? He is is similar to a priest, but somebody who mediates, who has his hand on God and has his hand on man and mediates between the two. Jesus is the great mediator. Moses was the first mediator. He mediated between God and man. He was the one that went up on the mountain and and came and represented God to the people, priestly function, represented the people to God. And, and so he was the one. He Even though Aaron was the high priest to be the high priest in Israel, Moses was the archetypical high priest through whom the priesthood would be fashioned in Israel and and in the law. And so, again, important role. In Job chapter 9, we see a prophecy here that Moses would be the initial fulfillment, partial fulfillment. Christ would be the ultimate fulfillment. Uh, In Job chapter 9, 32 through 35, we read this, For he is not a man, as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us, whom he lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and do not let dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but it's not so with me. He says, why is there no umpire? Why is there no daysman? Why is there no mediator between us? That, that Lord, that Father, I wouldn't fear your wrath 
And Moses was the one who, again, there in Leviticus, we see God's wrath rolled away because of his mediation for the people. We see that again. We see the ultimate fulfillment in Christ with us. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, this is uh, probably encapsulates Moses' ministry, Moses' authority. Uh, Deuteronomy 34.10 says, But since there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land, and by all that mighty power and that great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. This is an important guy. His name is synonymous with Judaism. Even in Jesus' day, they would say, well, Moses says, and, and when they would say that, it was synonymous with the law of Moses, the Old Testament law. And, and so at the reading of Moses, they, they still, Jews still talk about the reading of Moses, and it means the reading of the Old Testament in general, the Pentateuch, the first five books specifically. There's one problem. You can't add Messiah to Torah. You can't add Jesus to Torah. And, and what these people were wanting to do was to mix the two. The people in the first century, these Hebrew Christians, were to the point where through the ostracization from their culture and from their society, from their families, from their livelihood, we've talked about it before, they were going through a lot. And Jesus hadn't returned yet. And they were going through these places where they were beginning, as we looked at in chapter 2, they were beginning to drift. They were beginning to drift away from Christianity because of the pressures that they were experiencing. And so what they were, some of them were doing was beginning now to try to supplant Judaism with a form of Christianity, which was kind of a mix. Uh, and, and you can't do that. You just can't add Jesus, the new covenant, to the old. The law, did, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And now by faith, the law is fulfilled in Christ, in us. And it's not for us. The, the effect of the law was terminated at that cross. And yet there are still groups today, I have some dear friends that are uh, part of this thing called the Hebrew Roots Movement, and it's very popular. And, and it's where they're trying to mix Torah trying to mix old covenant with new. And, and, and I mean, right down to trying to live like a first century Jew with the long beard and, and you know, blowing the shofar and doing all the stuff. And it's like, no, 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 you totally missed the point. Jesus set us free from the law. The law was a schoolmaster. In Galatians, we're told that it was a tutor to lead us to Christ. And that's the job of the law of Moses. So, uh, these people were trying to go back to their old life, but it wouldn't fit because the gospel is so different from the law, uh, and yet they were tempted, and, and we too can be tempted. What does your old life look like? Uh, I know what mine looks like, and, and sometimes I'm tempted. Sometimes I'm, I think, man, you know, the ministry's tough, and uh, I could just go get a job somewhere, and I have this little daydream that goes on, and then it goes through about 30 seconds before the Lord reels me back in and says, you are where I have you, and you're going to stay there. And I, okay, Lord, yeah, I will. So, but, but my point is, is that there are those things that, that pull at us, don't they? And, and things that pull at our soul, things that, that 
try to influence us. The enemy is really good at packaging the world and making it look attractive. And he was doing that with these people. And so now the writer shifts. We looked at in chapter 2 what it was to not drift. And and, and then last week we looked at the, the whole thing there where uh, I just went blank. <laughs> we looked at chapter 2. So, well, oh yeah, we looked at angels and all that. So, but the point is, is that here, now, the writer shifts and he starts talking about the father of the whole Old Testament, the most important guy. And remember, part of what the writer is doing here in Hebrews is he says, look at this in the law, look at this in Judaism, look at this in the Old Testament, now look at Jesus, he's better. And he goes back and forth, and he's going to start bouncing back and forth on this, because what he's going to do is go straight to Moses, straight to the pillar of Judaism. And he's got some great things to say about it. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the first six verses this morning. I'm going to read through them, and then we'll go back and we'll unpack them a bit. So beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the, holy, of the heavenly calling, Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for the testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. There's a lot there. <laughs> we'll take a look and take a look at, at pulling this apart a bit. As we go back, I want to look at, at verse 1a, the, the first half of verse 1. And you see on the screen, I've got ESV. That's the, the English Standard Version. Just this one verse. The syntax works easier. It's easier to break down. It says exactly the same thing as the New King James. Uh, but the syntax is it's just easier to break down. So I'm just for that one verse, I'm going to use that. And then we'll hit switch back to the, the New King James. Uh, so in 1a, he says, therefore, holy brothers, you share in a heavenly calling, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Remember, we looked a couple of weeks ago at that word, therefore, when we started in chapter two. And what's the question that we ask when we see that word? What's it there for? Right. And so what he's doing is he's saying, okay, based on what I've just finished saying, because Jesus took on humanity. We looked at the, that's right, I just unspaced out on that. We talked about the humanity of Christ last week. And, and because Jesus took on humanity, he, he hasn't always been human. Remember, we talked about that. Because he took on humanity, because he was made in all things like us. That's what it tells us in 2.17. He says, therefore, with that in mind, holy brothers... Remember in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren or brothers. What he's talking about is believers. He's talking about the family of God. And so when he talks about being sanctified, 
what, what it, that word is, is the, the process of being made holy. And when we come to Christ, the moment I give my life to, to Christ, the moment I turn from the old life and embrace him as Lord, I am sanctified. I am, by declaration, made holy. When God looks at me, he sees me in the holiness of Christ. And that's a done deal. It's there. Now, that's the, the positional holiness or positional sanctification that I have. As God now works and he begins to conform me to the image of his son, as he begins to work in my life and as he finds a, a vessel that's yielded to his work, which is kind of important because he, he can want to work all he, all he does, but unless I'm willing and I, I want to be conformed to the image of his son, it's not going to happen. But he is now sanctifying me. He is sanctifying us. He is making us holy. He's conforming us to the image of Christ. And that's a process that will continue until we go to be with the Lord. And so what he's saying here is holy brothers. He's talking about the ones who are being sanctified and the one who sanctified being one. He says, we're one. Why are we one? Because Jesus is a human. He is a man. And it's, it's an appeal based on the humanity of Christ now looking at that, calling us brothers, saying that, that therefore, holy brothers were partakers of the heavenly calling. Uh, and he says sharers, partakers, partners in the heavenly calling. Because Jesus is committed, remember in chapter 2, to bringing many sons to glory. We are partakers in that. That's the heavenly calling that's being referred to. Remember, there's no chapter and verse breaks in this. And so this is one train of thought that the writer is bringing forth because he's getting ready to launch into something really significant as pertains to Moses. But what he says here is he says to consider Jesus. What does that mean? Uh, you know, I did an interesting thing. I just... Did a, I, I googled consider uh, on my computer yesterday. Next slide, please. Uh, and, and I looked up the word consider, and there were three definitions that I, I looked at, and I went, wow, those really fit where I want to go this morning with our study. Uh, the first is to think carefully about before making a decision. So to consider is to think carefully about something before I make a decision. I'm considering something. I'm considering Jesus in that sense. The second is to think about and to be drawn toward. Uh, again, interesting. The third is to regard someone as having a specified quality. So I'm going to take these three definitions, going to break them down as relate to the text that we're in this morning. The first is to think about carefully before making a decision. That's the first. I'm going to read something that uh, I came across from, from D.L. Moody. You guys, uh, have you heard of him? He's he was a, a great evangelist in the 19th century and uh, was based out of Chicago. And this is something that, that uh, uh, is reported about him from 1871. It happened on October 8th, 1871, during a preaching series in Farwell Hall in Chicago. Moody's text was, What then shall I do with Jesus, which is called Christ? At the conclusion of the message, Moody said he would give the people one week to make up their minds about Jesus. He turned to Ira Sankey for a solo, and Sankey sang, Today the Savior Calls. 
By the third verse, Sankey's voice was drowned out by the noise outside the hall. The great Chicago fire had begun, and the flames were even then sweeping toward the hall. The clanging of fire bells and the noise of the engines made it impossible to continue the meeting. In the years that followed, Moody wished that he had not given a week, but had called for an immediate decision for Christ. So when we look at this, what does it mean to consider Jesus? It means to think carefully about Jesus before making a decision. And and I know many or most of us in this room are believers, and, and yet there is a place where we choose Christ. So there's a place where we daily choose Christ, and we choose to be cooperating with the work of his Holy Spirit within. Interesting. Uh, I don't know. I, I might have mentioned a guy by the name of Poppy. Uh, he's a guy that uh, we had a call a, a few weeks back, probably three weeks ago, from uh, a woman in Southern California. Uh, actually, it was an email to the church and, and Rick uh, Riverman, who's not here this morning, and I fielded this thing, and, and I called and spoke with this woman. And, uh, her father's name is Robert. His nickname is Poppy. He goes by Poppy, and, and her name is Julie, but she goes by Sammy, so it's Sammy and Poppy. At any rate, I was trying to keep track of all that. But Julie said, look, my dad has, he, he has terminal leukemia. He is end stage. He is at the end of the line. And, and the doctors have said that he's doing all right for now, but when he begins to deteriorate, it will go very quickly. And I am very concerned because my dad, he's been a churchgoer all of his life, but I really don't believe that he has a relationship with Christ. And so uh, I said, well, you know, we'll go and talk with him and on. And Rick, uh, Reverend began to go down and visit this guy. Uh, uh, what's the name of the place where he, do you guys remember? Anyway, he's at a place here in Newburgh. Uh, I mean, he was from Northern California, but he ended up here because he had gone to, to uh, OHSU and been diagnosed and all. So anyway, Rick begins to visit with the guy and, and to just try to talk with him. And he could tell that there was just a real resistance to the gospel. And a polite, wonderful guy. I went and visited myself and, and had a really nice talk with him. And, and there was just, again, there was a resistance. And so uh, we're sitting around Thursday morning at the men's Bible study up here. And Rick was there. So was Chuck Porter. And Chuck is preparing to go to Kenya. And, and uh, you know, and we were teasing about, hey, you know, we could do a test run on this guy kind of a thing with sharing the gospel. Well, the Lord put it on Chuck's heart to go. And he and Rick went down. And Chuck was able to lead this guy to the Lord. And and and, and it was just, I, I got a call from Rick. We were on the highway. I was going to an appointment and Rick was just overjoyed. And and they went down the next day because Rick was saying, you know, and Chuck was saying, I don't know if that was really a take or if it was just something he did. And here, it was the first time they got there the next day. They got there on, on Friday. This was on Thursday when this happened. And, and Poppy was actually up sitting in a chair, said he felt great, and that he just had this joy about him. Yeah, we're going to see him in heaven. I'm absolutely convinced. And, and here is a guy who thought carefully about Jesus. And he's looking at, I mean, he's looking at the end of the line as this world goes, as this life goes. And, and, and God, through a series of divine appointments with people that we've never met in, in all of that uh, used people in this little body to reach out and to lead this guy into the kingdom. And that he thought about Jesus. He considered 
And he made that decision. So when we look at this to think carefully about before making a decision, that's Poppy. And this morning, he's a brother in Christ. Couldn't say that a week ago. So praise God. In chapter 2, verse 1, the writer says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We talked about drifting. And this is the opposite. When we're going to consider carefully before making a decision, it's we don't want to drift. We don't want to get off center. That can happen to us as believers, folks. We can, you know, I'll tell you what. There are lots of things that compete for our affections, aren't there? There are lots of things that compete for our desire. And, and, and we can, if we are not intentional about this, we can drift. We can get off. So when we talk about considering Jesus, notice that I have up there on the screen that it's a verb. Okay? I left that. No, go back. <laughs> We're still there for a few minutes. Uh, it's a verb. And, and if you remember English, and I don't remember a lot of high school English, believe me, but I do remember enough that a verb denotes action. And so when we consider Jesus, it's not necessarily just think about and that's it. It's to think about, to arrive at a conclusion, and then to act. That's the point. The second definition we have here uh, is to think about and to be drawn toward. Think about that. Uh, again, as it relates to chapter 2, where the writer is saying, don't drift away, but consider Jesus now and be drawn toward him. And that's what we call growth, folks. We call that being engaged with the Lord's work in our lives. And, and as the people would consider Jesus, to consider Looking back to chapter 1, to consider his role in creation, consider his deity, the fact that he is God. Yes, fully man, but fully God at the same time. That through him, all that is, exists is, came into being. Again, we talked about that word uh, for, co not cosmos, for the world. We talked about the word anon, which means every level of existence. The seen and the unseen. And things that are infinite and eternal, as well as things that are finite and temporal. That Jesus is over all of it. And so he's saying, consider Jesus. Consider this one I've been talking about. Consider the gospel and the power of God in the gospel, as opposed to Judaism, the rigid, uh, ritualistic, the, the, the thing that the Jews had distilled down to endless lists of obedience. Do you really want to go back to that? Or do you want to experience the fullness of freedom in Christ? So as he's exhorting these people to think about Christ, that, that, that their conclusion as they consider him would be to be drawn toward him, to see the value of being in relationship with him. As they looked at the law of Moses, and as, as he's going to go into that here as we go along, as they looked at the law of Moses to see that the love of God far surpasses the law. That, that if you boiled the, the old covenant down, it would be do it and live. And if you look at the new covenant, it's, it's done, therefore love. All of this a result of the love of God being shed abroad in our hearts. Also, as you consider Jesus thinking about what it means to be drawn toward him, 
There is a sober reality presented in chapter 2 as well. Part of that therefore. We're still in the therefore. It's <laughs> still in verse 1. The sober reality of what happens if you ne neglect so great a salvation. He says, who will escape if we, if we neglect it? That, I mean, yes, of course, I want the love of God to be what compels me to go forward with him. But I also believe, and, and, and I don't want to, I, I want to say this carefully because we don't need to walk around being scared. But I believe the fear of God is a healthy thing. There is a place where the fear of God kicks in. And, 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 and that as we understand what it is to do business with a holy God, that that should compel me, that should cause me to be motivated to draw closer to Christ because that's. He's my refuge. He's the one who, who my life is hidden in him. The third definition we hear, see here is to regard someone as having a specified quality as we consider Jesus. In uh, the next slide, please. In the second half of uh, verse 1, uh, this is considered Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all of his house. He talks about our apostle and high priest. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is, is, is called an apostle. Uh, many times, uh, just sort of in a Bible trivia kind of a sense, I've asked people, I've said, well, who's the greatest of the apostles? And, you know, usually people say the Apostle Paul, or maybe they'll say Peter, and all this. No, 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 keep going. And, and kind of tease them a bit, because the greatest apostle is Christ himself. And what an apostle is, is someone who is sent. It's a person who speaks directly for another. He's a sent one. And now, notice that he says he's appointed. Apostles are not, they don't just sign up. They're appointed by God. And, and this, it's a divine appointment that is limited in the sense that Jesus directly represents the Father to us. He's an apostle. It's, a, it's similar to an ambassador. And the apostles represent directly represent Jesus to us, apostolic authority. And so when he's talking about that, it's more than a messenger, more than a missionary. And there are people, and I don't want to split hairs, but I get a little bit... Uh, I question when somebody says, I have an apostolic ministry. And um, sometimes I, I kind of cringe because I, I want to ask, what does that mean to you? <laughs> because sometimes it's stuff that's really not found in God's word. Uh, sometimes it's uh, born of being inflated without cause by one's fleshly mind, <laughs> if I might be so direct. And the Bible talks about such. But truly, uh, somebody who's a missionary is an apostle. I, I think about Chuck and Joanne going to Africa. They're going in, in an apostolic sense. Not a capital A apostle, not sent as a direct representation of, of God in that sense, but going uh, as missionaries. And a missionary is a sent one. They're, that same word is used in the book of Ephesians, where it talks about some are called as apostles. Uh, and so... Looking at that, God the Father chose 
to appoint Jesus because the message of love that he had was so great, so important, that he sent his son himself. And that's Jesus, our apostle and high priest. Now, remember, a priest, we don't look at the priesthood in a New Testament sense. Uh, the priesthood in the Old Testament, in the law of Moses, was the priest, the Levitical priest. They had to be of the tribe of Levi. And the actual ones who did the priestly duty had to be the sons of Aaron. They had to be related to Aaron. Because there were Levites, they carried out all the priestly functions. They set up the tabernacle, tore it down, and carted it around, and all that. But the guys that actually did the priestly functions were the ones who represented the people to God and represented God to the people. They were mediators in that sense. Okay, We don't have, because we have direct access, there's no need for a priest in the Old Testament in the Levitical sense. When we get further into this book, we'll see that Jesus is our high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is far better, far surpasses any function of the Levitical priesthood. We'll see that he's not only the priest, he's the sacrifice. He fulfills both roles. All of that points to Christ. And so as the apostle and high priest after our confession, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about him who was faithful. In, in It says who was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was in all of his house. Verse 3, for this one, Jesus, speaking of Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. He's essentially saying, okay, look at Moses. He was faithful in his house, in the house, in, in the old covenant. But guess what? Jesus is better. Why? Because he built the house. And, and so, very simple. I mean, I don't want to overcomplicate this. The writer is simply illustrating once again, Jesus is better. Consider Jesus. He's better than Moses. And that's a big deal to a Jewish mind. Remember, I was sharing when I was in Bible college that we would walk in every morning and when the guy started the class on Hebrews that he would snap his fingers next to his ears and say, you're a Jew. Because you have to approach this with a Jewish mindset. That was when we all put on coffee filters one day and acted like we had yarmulkes and all that. That was hilarious. But the point is, is that you have to look at this through a Jewish mindset, through the lens of Judaism. And when the writer is saying this, when these people are beginning to long for the comforts that they had with what was familiar to them all their lives and what their family was perhaps still immersed in, he's saying, look, I understand all of that. But you can't go back. You can't mix Messiah with Judaism. You can't do it. It's a whole new thing. When Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood, he meant it. And he inaugurated a new way of relating to God. It's not on the basis of law. It's not on the basis of Moses. Moses was faithful. He was a great man. As I said, until Jesus, the greatest man who ever lived. And yet Jesus is better. Why? Because he inaugurated a new and better way to God. That's what we get to enjoy, folks. That's what we benefit from. By simply having, simply believing that Jesus did what he did, that he represented me on that cross, and that when death couldn't hold him, that his sacrifice was fully acceptable to the Father, and he rose from the dead, the firstborn. That that's the absolute assurance we have of being able to spend eternity in the presence of God. 
can't, can't get there with Moses. You didn't reach that far. In 2 Corinthians 3, uh, the Apostle Paul writes about Moses' glory. He talks about when Moses came down from the mountain and his face was glowing because he'd been in the presence of God. But the glow was kind of starting to fade. It was wearing off because his glory was decreasing to the point where Moses, they had to put a towel over his face. He, let's cover that thing up. And, and, and I don't want to go into that in depth, but it says Moses' glory was fading. It says, but we all with unveiled face... Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. We're being metamorphosed. That's what that means in 2 Corinthians, that we are, we are increasing in glory as children of God because his glory is being worked in us. And as we're being conformed to the image of his son, that light shines brighter. That glory is, 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 is noticed. That glory is increasing. What's amazing here is that Moses fulfilled his ministry. He was faithful in his ministry. He, there's, and the writer's very careful. He doesn't put Moses down. But what he's saying is that Moses exercised faithfulness in his ministry, but Jesus exercised perfect faithfulness in his. Therefore, he's better. Verse 4. This is for every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. Uh, I want you to notice here, he doesn't have any problem. The writer here doesn't have any problem at all. We see it in chapter 1, especially when he talks about the deity of Christ, the Godness of Christ. He doesn't have any problem here talking about Jesus and in the same breath saying the builder of all things is God. He has no problem with the deity of Christ. Verse 5, and Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which are spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. I want to look at three things by comparison between Moses and Jesus. The first is this. Moses was faithful as a servant. Jesus was faithful as a son. So a son is better than a servant. Would you rather be friends with the servant in the house or be friends with the son of the owner? The son owns it all. I mean, the reason why we see the son over and over again in this is the son is the heir. He is the rightful inheritor. He is the one who is over the house. He is the one, especially, and the firstborn son, the firstborn, the only begotten son, in that sense, is telling us that Jesus is prominent, preeminent in all things. And so, do I want to be friends with the servant? That's kind of silly when I have the opportunity to have a relationship with the son. The second is this. Christ is faithful as a son. You and I are the house. He forms our lives into a living temple. Peter talks about that. He talks about us being living stones, being formed into a holy temple, a living temple. Question. Do you act like his building? Do you act like part of his temple? You know, I, I remember uh, as a young Christian, uh, I would... I would 
hear people talk about uh, uh, you shouldn't smoke cigarettes because your body's a whole, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I, and I would think, you know what? That's a health issue. Come on. Let's go a little deeper than that. Number one, that's talking about sexual sin. But number two, what it's talking about is we literally are the temple of God. There's no need for a stone temple. That's why in the book of Revelation, when John the Apostle is taken up to the holy city, the New Jerusalem, he says, I looked around, I couldn't find a temple. Paraphrasing, but that's what he says. Why? Because there's no need now. We are the temple. We are the dwelling place of God. So what's better? To be a servant in the house or to be related to the son? To realize that Jesus is faithful as a son and we're the house. The third thing is he says here, and, and it's a conditional warning. I'm not going to soften it. He says, if we hold fast to the end. That's an if. Are you continuing to trust Christ? You know, it's just good at times to, to sort of do a self-reality check. To, to do a, to, it, the Bible says examine yourself. See if you're in the will of God. And there is a point where we need to examine ourselves. Primarily, yeah, am I in relationship to Christ? Because if I'm not, then I'm neglecting that salvation he talks about in chapter 2, and, and I won't escape. What's on the other side of that is wrath. But if I am in relationship with him, the last thing I want to do is to allow the moorings to loosen to where I drift. The last thing I want to do is to not hold fast until the end. This life, this walk, requires continual focus on him. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Uh, I remember one of my boys, uh, as a matter of fact, the same one that had a motorcycle wreck uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, was doing a, a marathon one time. He was doing a triathlon. And, and I'm, I thought, my gosh, I wish I was in that kind of shape because he did all this running and then he jumped into a kayak and kayak like miles down the Sacramento River and then got out of the kayak and rode his bike back to where he started. I was tired just watching this guy. The point is, folks, having a relationship with Christ is a marathon. Are there obstacles? Absolutely. And I will not try to, to, to sugarcoat that. I've mentioned before, it used to bug me when I would hear, and I understand you know, the, the old thing with Bill Bright, the Campus Crusade for Christ. God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. He does. Often that plan involves great difficulty. Often that plan involves pain. Often that plan involves God literally engineering circumstances to carry us through very difficult and very deep water. And he not only allows it, I believe that he engineers it because he does it for our good. He does it because he is making us holy. He is sanctifying us. He is forming Christ in us. That doesn't come easily to us. Left to ourselves, we're going to take the easiest route. This is though God says from heaven, you know, not so fast, John. I've got some things I want you to learn, and I'm going to I'm going to let you come through it this way. 
And very often that involves pain. Does that mean that God is some ogre that's out there waiting to beat me up and to, to, to just get me all screwed up? No. It means that he loves me with a, a depth of love that I really, and I freely admit, I do not comprehend the love of God. I want every bit of it that I can. But he loves us with a love that is so perfect, so complete, an eternal love, an infinite love. We're finite beings. We can't grasp that. But I'll take it. So remember, it's not a sprint. This isn't a 50-yard dash. This isn't flash in the pan. This is you just you, you buckle up and you settle in and you realize, you know what, Lord? I'm in this for the long haul. Come what may. I remember as a younger Christian saying, bring it. Kind of arrogant. Guess what? He did. A little more careful about that, but I truly still, the attitude of my heart is, Lord, whatever you want to do. I just find a vessel that's yielded. So continual focus on Jesus is the key to faithfulness in God's household. Our thought lives can be a real distraction to us. To think about, and they can be dangerous as well. There are things that can pull us off, off of center and, and that can actually cause ruin in our spiritual lives. Uh, I think about Luke chapter 8, the parable of the soil. I, actually, the parable of the soils. It talks about four conditions of the human heart. There, Jesus does. Only one of them makes it. Uh, the one who allows the, the seeds to go down, find fertile soil to, to put down roots. One of the soil types in Luke 8, 14, he says, Now the seeds that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life. They bring no fruit to maturity. That's sobering. We live in a society that is like instant gratification. If it doesn't gratify me now, then I don't want it. I don't, I don't want to work for it. I just want it. And we live in a hedonistic society where uh, all around us there are people that are just living for pleasure. But what happened to living for Christ? There's a place, folks, where we need to be guarding our hearts to know that what God is doing in our lives may not be easy. But, oh, is it worth it? Oh, the reward. I, 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 I long for that day when I hear, and I pray that I will, hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. I, I just, I want that. 2 Corinthians, Paul warns there as well. He says, but I fear lest somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Again, serious stuff. Joyful stuff. I mean, on this side, absolutely. Belonging to Christ, there is nothing more joyful. And the fruit of his spirit is joy, even in the midst of tough circumstances. And yet, he wants to work in us. He wants to find, again, hearts that are yielded to him. It's about continual focus. The second thing about that is long-term faithfulness is the key to honor in God's household. Uh, in verse 2, Jesus is faithful. Moses is faithful. Both are faithful. 
How's it going? Is life knocking you down? You got a lot of cares on your mind? You got a lot on your plate? A lot of things going on? Take courage. Understand his love for you is such that he won't let you down. He won't let you flounder. If he's wanting to do some work in your life, give him permission. Allow him to do it. He loves us so much. He loves us so completely. He waits to pour out his love on our lives, to bring that healing balm in those areas where we hurt, to align circumstances for his glory, and to find people that are willing to go the extra mile, that are willing to be committed for the long haul. So if life is knocking you down, I want to encourage you, get up and get back to it. And know, like the guy with the withered hand, I love that illustration. When Jesus is with the man who had the withered hand, he walks up to a guy and says his hand was withered from birth. And he walks up to this guy and he says, stretch out your hand. And if I were that guy, I would have said, who are you? I have never been able to move this. I, you know, and I would have given him all the reasons I'm not going to stretch out my hand. This isn't the man. And I picture Jesus' eyes locking with this guy. He'd never moved his hand. It was withered, literally withered up. And just the faith necessary to begin to reach out his hand, to stretch out his hand. And it says, as he began to stretch out his hand, guess what? It was made whole. He will meet you in the act. As you exercise faithfulness, he will meet you there. That's the point of that whole thing with that guy. He met this guy. All it took, and he said, your faith has made your hand well. All it took was the faith necessary to begin to trust that maybe Jesus could do something in this. And as he began to stretch that hand out, it was made whole. That's how he works in our lives. Over 3,000 promises in the word of God. Every one of them. And I'm hard-pressed to think of any right off that are not brought about by faith on my behalf, by simply choosing to trust on my behalf, and he will do it. That's the relationship. That's how it works. That's how he set it up. The just shall live by faith. The book of Romans begins with a statement that says the obedience of faith. It ends with the same statement, the obedience of faith. Why? Because you always act on what you believe. You will always, always, always act on what you believe. And, and so with that being the case, come to new places of trust. That's why we go through these things. He's bringing us to new places of trust. He's bringing us to places of saying, Lord, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to, I'm going to put, I'm going to let the weight of my life down on you in this thing. And, and, and I'm, I'm just going to walk through it. And I'm praying for your power. I'm praying for your provision. I'm praying for your presence in this thing. Because I don't know how it's going to work out. I think about Chuck and Joanne going off to Kenya. Going across the planet. But there's a divine appointment. There's a series of divine appointments waiting for them there. Please be praying for them. Be praying for the whole team that's going. Coming up. Just a couple more weeks. The point is, is letting the weight of our life down on Jesus. Being committed for the long haul. Trusting that he's got it, whatever it is you're dealing with. So, closing this morning, looking at the slide that I had up 
Um, next slide. Consider to think carefully about before making a decision, to think about and to be drawn toward, to regard someone as having a specified quality. Let's apply that. The next slide. Consider Jesus. To think carefully about him. Having a life marked by choosing conformity to him daily. It's the daily walk. Tell you what, folks, it's not the major monumental decisions in our lives. that I mean, yeah, they count. But it's the daily decisions from the time that you wake up in the morning till you lay down at night. It's the decisions you make all through the day that add up to a life. And so... Think carefully about him. Have your life marked by choosing conformity. Your life will be transformed as you yield to his power, as you yield to his work daily. Sometimes by minute by minute. Sometimes hanging by my fingernails. And yet he's faithful. The second is to be intentionally drawn toward not drifting from him. As I mentioned before, there's no neutral. You're either moving forward in your relationship with him or you're going backwards. That's why the writer in this, in this book, in this marvelous book, so that's why he doesn't mince words at all. He, when it's time to warn, he warns. Next week, we're going to look at the second major warning, the second of six warnings in this book. And, 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 and it's sobering. It's serious because you know what? We're involved in serious business. This is life or death. I think about Poppy. I think about the guy down there at the end of the road. And I praise God that he touched Rick's and Chuck's heart to go down and minister to this guy. And that through them, and, and they're sharing the gospel with him, that his destination has changed. That he's going to see God. He's not going to be committed to hell. This is serious stuff. And so when the writer warns, guess what? Heed the warning. So our lives need to be marked by intentionally being drawn toward him, by thinking about it, considering him, not drifting from him. One is intentional, the other is aimless. The third thing is to regard him as the one, as the one, unmatched in holiness, unmatched in splendor, unmatched in grace that is poured out on our lives every minute of every day. That's what we call worship. As we worship him, those are the things that, that I want to occupy my mind. I want to consider him. I want to look at him. I want to see Jesus in the daily affairs of my life. I love seeing him in yours. Let's pray. Father, you are just so magnificent. You are so good to us. Your love for us is unmistakable. Your power in our lives is all that we need. Lord, let us be people whose lives are marked by availing ourselves of the power that you bring.